Tanel and Jeremy Tanel. Streaming to you recorded from Seattle, Washington. Here. Welcome to the Plowline Podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Tunnell. And today I'm not joined by my co-host, Jerry Ubalarosa Tunnell. We're doing something a little different. Jerry has started a new podcast called the Mixed Plate Podcast, and I highly advise that you check it out. You can find it anywhere that popular podcasts are found. She's a natural. She's very good at holding space and conversations with people. I'm gonna try something a little different though. I'm gonna just try and have a conversation with you, which means I'm going to probably end up doing most of the talking. But in an effort to try and find a way to express where I'm at and where this is going, I think maybe the best way to do that is to just tell a story. I think my first job was working for my father. He was a general contractor and a good one. My brother and I started sweeping floors for him when we were about 13 years old. I was 13, he was 12. We weren't very good at it, but I think my father's entire desire and point was simply for us to learn how to work. That continued and responsibilities got larger every summer, winter break, spring break. We'd make a little bit of cash, have the opportunity to spend that cash where we wanted. When I graduated high school, I started community college. My parents really didn't have any intention of sending me to college. I remember coming back to high school the summer after my junior year and listening to all the stories of my friends that had traveled to go visit campuses and investigate different colleges as they started that process for themselves. And I just immediately had this sense of, oh shit, like I was behind the eight ball. See, in, in my mind, I was always going to go to college. I don't know why. Nobody in my family had ever graduated from university or community college for that matter. But I always knew that I was going to go to college. By the time my senior year rolled around and my friends were talking about the SAT and putting in the applications for the schools that they wanted to see if they could get into, I had investigated no campuses and I really hadn't even talked to my parents about it. I signed up for the SATs and I did no prep. I wouldn't have known what to do anyways. As you can probably imagine, I didn't do well. It's not like I was some sort of academic genius in hiding. 
However, I was still determined. I was going to go. So, I went to the counselor's office and sat down and started in on a conversation with him about three quarters of the way through my senior year. I think the word I'm searching for is mocked me. He mocked me. I was late to my application and clearly had not done any of the preparation. And he recommended a technical college or even the local community college. In the brochure rack outside of his door were the college applications in trifold, full-color brochure. I grabbed two, Western Washington University and WSU. And I took them home, and I began to work on them by myself. I quickly ran into a problem. I didn't know what FAFSA meant, and I certainly didn't have the financial paperwork in order to be able to turn in what was required. So, on what was probably 7 p.m. on a Tuesday evening, I walked downstairs into the living room where my parents were watching television. I handed my dad the half-filled-out application, and I asked them both if they would help me submit the paperwork so that I could go to college. I was mocked once again. They both told me that I wasn't going to school and I most certainly wasn't going to take advantage of any welfare programs in order to get to it. Welfare programs. I just wanted to see if I qualified for a grant. My mother told me in no uncertain words, I did not. I went back upstairs with my application, scratched my head, and realized I was not going to be able to fill out this paperwork. But I had started the conversation. So over the course of the next weeks, I persisted in my efforts to try and get to college, and at last they relented and told me that they would allow me to go to Clark Community College, just 10 miles away from the house. My brother, who expressed no plans for college, was happy with the opportunity. And on the first day of school, our mother, in her Ford Aerostar, dropped us off to our first day of college. I knew that I was not going to go back to work for my father at that point. So, I got a job at Denny's. And I began serving coffee during the night shift. The tips weren't great. The money wasn't that great either. I certainly wasn't going to be moving out on my own anytime soon. So the rides to college and the minivan persisted. This too was unbearable. I worked the job for probably three months. And had been in and out of the college bookstore a dozen times and thought to myself, now this is a place to work. I approached the manager, was hired on the spot, received a $3 raise from what I was making at Denny's, 
and promptly began working at the bookstore for as many hours as I possibly could in between classes. This went on for a year and a half before the minivan and living at home became completely untenable. In the winter of 1993, I packed up everything I owned in a 1983 Subaru GL hatchback that I had purchased. Consisted of clothes, a guitar, some random things, and I headed north. Over the course of my first week in Bellingham, I found a job. I applied and got into the spring corner at Whatcom Community College. And I found a place to live. A small room that was no bigger than most people's walk-ins closets that already came furnished with a beat-up dresser and a futon mattress on the floor. I was off and running. I finished Clark Community College, went on to Western, worked my way through Western by working summers in Alaska with a group of friends that were working in the tourism industry. I'd spend six months in Alaska, do two quarters at Western, and do it all over again until I finished in 1998. I got a job out of college with my writing degree and my marketing communications minor as at a small local design firm. I thought I was a marketing master. I learned a lot. I was very fortunate to be under the tutelage of an individual who helped start the marketing communications program at Western Washington University in the late 60s. I took that and left and thought I'd give working for my father one more try. So I became his marketing manager, which really at that point meant that I had zero responsibility. He had built a construction business out of Portland, Oregon that was about $20 million strong, boasted of national clients such as Costco, Fred Meyer. Pep Boys, and I began to try and encourage him in the ways of marketing that I knew, which weren't much. He really wasn't interested. He was the company's marketing manager and, and did almost all of his client negotiation and uh, acquisition with a handshake. That lasted six months. I left there and headed back to Bellingham. Lived in a small basement apartment for free for about two months, thanks to the care of a former client of mine. And acquired a job at a new company called Voicestream. It was the up and coming wireless industry and Voicestream was on a streak, buying out any and every carrier they could in the United States to expand their business. The bet paid off. By the time they were bought by T-Mobile, by, uh, Deutsche Telekom, they were the largest wireless provider in the United States. They're now the largest wireless provider in the world with their 
relationships with Deutsche Telekom. I worked there for almost three and a half years. I did well. I went from call center rep to team supervisor to technical support supervisor to call center manager when finally I was given the responsibility to build from scratch the corporate customer care department. I was on that department managing it, about 120 call center employees, uh, four different call center man uh, supervisors, our own training team. We worked with a number of corporate clients all over the United States. I was in there at call center uh, managing that group the day that the planes hit the towers on September 11, 19, or 2001. We were on the phone with individuals who had corporate lines inside those towers when they went down. Some of those lines were still active under the rubble. It was a difficult day for all of us. I was young. I was 28 years old. I ended up in a political situation there that I had no idea I was in. They, frankly, T-Mobile, didn't know what to do with corporate customer care. We had started it with the blessing of a vice president, but with no blessing from anybody above them. And when that vice president moved on, as they often did, I ended up getting a series of consultants from KPMG who acted as my interim executive directors or vice presidents, whatever role they ended up in. One of those saw the potential of my department. We had literally built it from scratch, everything. We even had our own intranet within the system that we housed. It was an accomplishment for a 28-year-old and, and that team. And that team ran well. Our clients liked us. For the first time, large corporate organizations weren't having their individual phone users sent to financial services to collect a four or five and a half million dollar bill. They weren't getting their thousand lines shut off because T-Mobile had neglected to write any sort of policy or procedure around how to handle large corporate customers. This individual saw the opportunity and unbeknownst to me, between bi-monthly visits and doing, you know, doing runs together and having dinner together and thinking that I had finally found somebody who was going to be an advocate for this department. I got drug into human resources under an accusation of fraud. I was interrogated for about three and a half hours, four hours, and then unceremoniously let go. There was no fraud. I just simply walked into a situation that I just had no idea. And this individual ended up taking over my department. 
that made me pretty bitter. I really thought I was going somewhere. I really thought at 28 years old, the gifts and talents of who I was were culminating into something pretty special. And we did build something special. I was unemployed for a year. It was right after 9-11. The economy took a bit of a dip. I was newly married less than a year when all this happened. And I struggled to find my way forward. It was difficult to find a job in the community I was in. And I knew there was something more. Previous to being fired, I would have been completely willing to give my life, my life's purpose, my vocational meaning to a corporate endeavor that I thought was going to recognize me for who I was. But when I realized that corporate endeavors don't give a shit who you are, I just fell into a hole. Somewhere around... So that, that was April of 2002. By the time March of 2002 had rolled around, I had been working on a side project of mine, trying to give my life some sense of forward momentum. I called it the regiment. I'd been running at 5 a.m., at a local lake, beautiful place, dirt path. It was pitch dark every single morning, headlamp on, nobody out there, just me. Just trying to find my way forward. And I thought that I started to see a glimmer of that, and so I wanted to share that with others. So in March, March 3rd, 2003, Monday, I started the regiment. Run your race. And for 12 weeks, a group of men met me out there, and we ran around a lake. And I taught them how to, how to run three miles. Most of them couldn't run a quarter mile when we started. It was surprising that first morning when all those people showed up. I had been taking little business cards, little business card uh, uh, with the regiment logo on it and a website, and sticking them inside stall doors at bathrooms and leaving them on countertops and any place I could within that community. And it had worked because about 30 people showed up that first morning and about 15 people stayed the second. When I finished, I finished with almost 12. I think it was 12. One individual came in and out quite a bit, but I would say 12. 12 weeks. At the end of 12 weeks, those sad sacks that couldn't run a quarter of a mile were carved out of wood. We could do six miles, which we were doing, every morning, five days a week, a series of calisthenics at the end. And on Wednesdays, we would gather together in a small group in order to discuss philosophical and life ideas. How do we run our race? How do we move ourselves forward? At the end of all that, I managed to get a job. I started working with Comcast Cable as a marketing manager. 
But at the same time, my marriage fell apart. And I had grown up in the church. My grandfather was a Southern Baptist pastor. I went to church and was involved all the way through my 20s. I was in lay leadership and small group leadership. And I was being mentored as I worked through the consideration of possibly going to get my master's in divinity by the head pastor of our local church. On Easter Sunday of that year, he decided to do a video message to communicate to the church body that he was no longer going to be the church pastor. That he was stepping down and moving on. Well, by the time the video ended, the whispers around the congregation had made it pretty clear that he had been involved in infidelity and I wasn't even really upset about that. I was upset that we all put him up on a pedestal in the first place so that he could fall off. So my marriage was falling apart. My ideas of church and faith fell apart. My ideas of corporate endeavors and vocational possibilities fell apart. So when I started that job, I should have given a shit, but I didn't give a shit. When I walked into that office on that first day, those fluorescent lights felt like they were bearing down on me like a bag of sand. I could feel the weight of that artificial light. I felt sick to my stomach, but I had to have a job. I had to have a way in order to pay the bills and move forward and make this thing work. So that's what I did. I did my job. I did my job well, but I was an awful team player, awful team player. It didn't take long before my opportunities for forward momentum there dried up at my own volition. I couldn't wait to get out of there. I started my first business that year, Atura Recreation, A-T-U-R-A Recreation. I wanted to do bike and cycling and kayak tours. We lived in the perfect place for it. The only downside was there was no tourism industry there. So I decided to do a bike festival, the Broken Spoke Festival. And I partnered with a sales manager that was working at Comcast, a young woman that I had met. We became friends after a time, although it took time. I was trying to be anything that made, that made sense, authentic. I just couldn't fake it anymore. I couldn't put on a smile that I didn't mean, and I couldn't, I couldn't say things that I didn't believe which is why I made a really bad marketing manager for Comcast Cable. And over time, as this person and I began to work with each other, she saw that, and instead of seeing that as a detriment like everybody else, she too could no longer live a lie. She too could no longer put a smile on every day that she didn't mean. It meant 
huge changes for her and for I. I had already gone through a divorce and and uh, up ended my life. And though I wasn't necessarily looking for people to follow me in that endeavor, she did. She moved out of the marriage relationship that she was in for 18 years that was abusive and difficult and, and uh, got a place of her own. Um, left her two boys, uh, 16 and 17 years old there. She was torn apart, but she knew she had to in order to do something real, in order to be someone real. Our friendship continued to grow, and another friend of mine who ended up being on the same path joined us in that endeavor, and the three of us pushed each other towards that authenticity as best we could as we tried to navigate our lives and pay our bills and move forward. Over time, you end up in the day-to-day, and it's difficult to stay on your path. It had been some time since I had, I had seen either one of my friends. My birthday came up and they decided to throw a party for me, which was great. It was incredible. I had turned 31. And at the end of that, this person and I looked at each other and I said to myself, this is somebody that I could spend more time with. And we began to date, and it was hell. It was awful. Because we were two people who were determined to not live lives that were full of shit. And when you get together with somebody else, even though you think you've worked on your shit, you find that there's all kinds of shit that you're bringing with you. So after breaking up and dating and breaking up and dating two dozen times and about, about a year into this relationship, we started counseling. There was no intention to get married. We weren't engaged. We weren't living with each other, but we started counseling. And so we did this for about eight months, moved in with each other, continued counseling, got engaged, continued counseling. We got married in February of 2006, continued counseling. And for the first five years of our dating and marriage relationship, we counseled and dealt with this stuff. And then our counselor retired and we were on our own. And we had gotten to a place where we thought maybe we could figure some stuff out. At the time I was running a small business for a franchise business for for another owner and uh, it was 2007 2008 January of 2008 rolls around and the rumbles of potential financial crashes are beginning to just sort of peek out underneath the rug of our society I continued to run that business and 
our stellar start from 2007 began to take a massive slowdown in that summer, and it shouldn't have. We should have been on track to double our income, but we weren't. And on that October morning when I was listening to the radio news and they told us it's official, we're going into maybe the worst recession this country has ever known. I called up my wife and I said, we're done. There's no way we're going to make it through this financially. If we don't downsize our debt and find a way forward, we're in trouble. So from October to March, we sold everything we had. I drove the truck that we had a we had a loan on to the bank, handed them the keys, said I was sorry. We sold the Volvo that we owned. We bought a little truck, Dodge Dakota, 2001. It had 12,000 miles on it. Some old man had bought it and parked it in a garage. It was bare minimums. It had a cassette deck and a five-speed stick. You rolled down the windows just like you used to on my dad's old 67 Chevy. It wasn't much to see, but it had low miles and we owned it. We backed a U-Haul trailer up to the house and filled it up with almost everything we owned. Took it to auction. We used the money for that to buy a small teardrop trailer called a Tab. And just as the wheels of the economy were beginning to come to a halt and the foreclosures were beginning to be seen for what they really were, we lit out on the road in March of 2009. And we stayed on the road for about five months. We thought we could ride out this recession but we couldn't. We were in trouble. We blogged and we wrote and we met a bunch of people and it was great. But we had a grandson, her, our first on, uh, on the way and there was just no way for us to stay out there. So we came back, not to the small town of Bellingham, but to the larger city of Seattle. Found ourselves uh, for a month in the spare bedroom of some friends, sold our trailer. Both got jobs that we could, which ended up being retail. And uh, settled in for the long haul of recession. We had no debt, we had eliminated it, but we had no assets either. Jerry worked at Macy's and I decided to follow through on a dream that I had always had working in a bike in a ski shop and I did and I was great at it I loved it and frankly if it wasn't for that job and that employer we would have never made it even though we were just literally bumping on the bottom constantly the light for the fuel light never went off in that truck for almost four years never we were putting in quarters and dimes in order to put some gas in there to drive the three miles, four miles from the condo we were renting to the mall we were both working at. I rode my bike most of the time because we didn't have the same schedule. Our grandson was born and we began to invest in the lives of the people around us. The youngest son went through some hard times and ended up moving in with us. 
We just tried to make life work. After a number of years of this and a difficult spring because the ski industry transitions into the bike industry and there's not always a lot of hours during that time, I was desperate to find anything. It was 2013. My wife's cousin stopped by the house one day. They lived locally for a while. And he said, you've got to come work with me. I am getting paid cash under the table. I'm making $700 for three days of work. It's uh, where the foreclosure homes are beginning to get released by the banks. We're turning them. It's awesome. So I took him up on his offer. And indeed, what he said was happening. There was a general contractor who had ended up in a relationship with a hedge fund that was acquiring properties from the banks in large blocks and he was turning them and the way he was turning them because he was getting dozens of houses at a time was he was turning them with any sort of crew he could put together and at that time anybody that could swing a hammer even if they were also smoking a crack pipe was considered a, a, a subcontractor so this guy was paying individuals to run crews mostly of tweakers most of those individuals were tweakers themselves and it was a mess i worked three days i got paid i left i told her cousin you find the guy that does this the general contractor and then you give me his phone number because we're going to do this on our own a week later i had that phone number called him up had my first project the next day i started my own construction company and ended up partnering with an old high school friend I ended up doing something for the next seven years that I hated. And I did it out of pure desperation. I didn't make any more money. I built a construction company. At one point, I had 14 employees, vehicles. But, you know, I mean, the money wasn't great. We were turning homes for these hedge funds that were buying them up faster than you could imagine. Many of them were converting them into rental homes, so I started a maintenance division. The maintenance division ended up being longer lasting than the construction division. And I ran that as long as I could until I just couldn't do it anymore. By that time, I had also gotten a master's degree during my time working at a bike and a ski shop. My wife had gotten a master's degree the same one, Whole Systems Design, from Antioch University, Seattle. My wife had finished her, well, she had started her doctoral work at the California Institute of Integral Studies. And we were moving down a path in that direction. So while I was holding the space for her to finish, she was diligently working to try and create something new for the two of us. It was excruciating. But her efforts paid off. She ended up acquiring a position as the director of equity for our school district. And all the work that she'd been putting into a dissertation, she began to apply into real world, into a major systemic institution, schools. I left my work when coronavirus hit in April. 
been working diligently to try and find a path forward. I've been working diligently to try and write books and assist in her dissertation work, convert her work, The Evolution of Aloha, into, into a book, which we're in process right now. I kept trying to move things forward, and I've done it. I've done it. I've managed to get some consulting work on the um, dismantling whiteness work that I've written on. Um, we created a, a curriculum for whole systems leadership. We've created a curriculum for evolution of aloha. We've moved forward. And yet, every day, as I sit in front of a computer trying to figure out how to push things forward between reconciling bank accounts with QuickBooks and trying to figure out how to get paid and trying to collect money and trying to write a chapter and trying to build a presentation, trying to create relationships. <laughs> I feel like I'm buried. And I feel like I'm mired down. I don't feel like I'm getting anywhere. And yet we are getting somewhere. It's hard. It's difficult to try and propel yourself forward. And yes, there is existential dread in all of it. It doesn't matter if it's working a J-O-B or if it's trying to propel something forward on your own. At the very least, at a J-O-B, you have other people that you're aligned with that existential dread with. They're either under you or co-workers next to you or bosses above you, but everybody feels the dread there, and you all get to feel it together. When you're on your own, you think that you're just standing still. Sometimes you are. But what's needed the most is encouragement. People to know that this story is worth listening to. That the effort to try and overcome that existential dread is worth the battle. That's what I'm saying to you now. We're going to try and make this happen. We have two companies, Co3 Consulting. And if you are interested in working with us and your organization on co-creating cohesive communities through the ideas found in the evolution of Aloha, which is a, a way towards personal transformation of individuals to create collective change within organizations, call us. If you're interested in exploring racial equity from the perspective of trying to find your place in it as a white person and trying to understand and keep your ears open to everything that's going around, call us. We can help you with our programs in dismantling whiteness. If you're an organization that is trying to propel your organization forward, but you're finding yourself stuck and mired down in everything that's going on in the world today, call us.
We can help you with our whole systems leadership and whole systems team. Our stuff is good. If you want to be a part of the work, but you've got a job because you've got a mortgage, you're raising kids, you got a car payment or two, you got things that you are obligated to, but you know there's a higher purpose, then find us at plowline.com. There you'll be able to find our projects, which is the Mixed Plate podcast, the Plowline podcast, the Evolution of Aloha book, the Dismantling Whiteness book, and all of our upcoming ventures. You'll also be able to become a member there. We're creating a co-op so that cooperatively we can work together to do this. Jerry and I might be the tip of the spear, but we can't do anything without you. Co3consulting.net and Plowline Consulting or Plowline.com. Check us out. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the story. God bless.